As we started chapter 11 last week, we remember Pastor Nick said that we were getting into a new section of 1 Corinthians. If you remember, uh, Paul is addressing many issues in this church that had many difficulties, many things they were struggling with, many things they were doing wrong. And so now starting in chapter 11 and really going through uh, chapter 14, Paul is dealing with uh, the problem that has come up that has to do with disorder in worship. Disorder in the worship of God's people as they gather together. And last week, we looked at the role of men and women in the church. The role of men and women, uh, how, they re- how they are complementary to each other, that God has created us that way, that we have roles uh, within uh, that, are, that are pertinent to us, whether we be male or female. It does not mean that we are not equal in the eyes of God as far as our worth. Uh, as far as uh, being made in the image of God, but nonetheless it does tell us, the Scriptures tell us that we have roles to play that differ. And so we talked about that last week, and now Paul uh, is going to, uh, as he started last week when he said in chapter 11, verse 2, he says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Here's Paul starting out chapter 11 with a praise. And, and so Paul being the good pastor, uh, the good Christian, when praise is warranted, when praise is due, he freely gives it and he excitedly gives it. He says, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But then we get to verse 17 and we see a, a change in his tone and a change in, in what he did there. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. And so now also being the good pastor that Paul was and the good uh, counselor, the good, uh, the good man who, who followed the, uh, God's word to the T, he understood that when a rebuke is needed, a rebuke is needed and it is due. And so you can't just praise for the sake of praise. You must deal with the issues as they come forth. And so now when he gets down to verse 17, he changes his tone and he says, I, I do not commend you because when you come together, when you come together in your corporate worship settings, when you come together to worship the Lord together, it is not for the better but for the worse. And can you imagine a worse thing to be said about you? That when you come together, when you take the time to come uh, to come out to worship the Lord together, whether it be in a home, a house as it was in this day, and we'll talk about that in a minute, or whether it is here this morning in this building, if it was our, if it was God's declaration to us that when we come together, it is not for the better but for the worse, then it's almost better that we not come together at all. And so Paul here is, is starting this off very clearly and very in-your-face rebuking them for their attitudes. And this is, con- this is completely contradictory and contrasting to what we've seen how we should come together. I mean, look in, look in, you don't have to turn there, but listen to the words of Acts chapter 2 whenever the church is just beginning after the day of Pentecost and Peter has preached the sermon and 3,000 souls were saved in Jerusalem. And what does God say about these people? He says in verse 41, So those who received His word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and, went, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's what 
coming together is supposed to, it should look like. When you're being ruled by the Spirit, when you're being led by the Spirit, when you're when it says here that all was upon these people. What kind of awe? A reverential awe of God that just permeates everything of their lives and you see it playing itself out in everything they do and approaching God's Word and sharing their things amongst each other and taking care of one another and breaking bread together. So that's what coming together is supposed to look like. But what the Corinthians are doing does not line up with that. And so Paul says... In the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. And so we're going to look at this text this morning. We're actually only going to go through uh, verse 26 this morning in our first part. But Paul is going to be dealing with this issue of when they come together and when they partake of the Lord's table. And so I have a three-point outline. The first thing we're going to look at is the perversion of the Lord's Supper. The second thing, the preservation of purpose of the Lord's Supper, and then finally the preparation for the Lord's Supper, which we will look at next week. So let's look and let's read verses 17 through 26. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not command you, commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So let's first look and see what is the problem going on here? What is it that Paul is saying that they are doing this, making it better, that it's not for the better but for the worse? And so we see there in verses 18 through 22, they're perverting the Lord's table. The first thing we see there in verses 18 through 19 as, as Paul is describing and laying out the problem for them, is that this church, these people were being divisive. Notice he says there, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. He says they're coming together as a church. That's the word ekklesia. That's the word, the Greek word that is used to describe God's church, wherever it may be. And if you know anything about church history, you know that in this time, in the early parts of the church, there were no buildings to be meeting in. For the most part, people were meeting in, in homes, usually probably homes of the more wealthier uh, people of the, of the church. And so they're coming together as a church. He says, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe in a part. 
And so here we begin. This is nothing new to us in this book, right? This is nothing that we have not seen over and over and over. This division that's cropping up amongst this church. We've seen early on that the division was existing over who these people were lining up under which teacher. Some under Apollos, some under Peter, some under Paul. And so division is something that is, that is racking this church very deeply. And so he says, when you come together, I hear that there are divisions among you. He says, and I believe it in part. He doesn't say that, yeah, okay, I know that that's happening. Paul, being the good Christian he is, he does not immediately believe something when he hears it. He's going to investigate it first to see it. But he says, I believe it in part. But then he gives them an overarching theological understanding of why these things happen from time to time. He says, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Paul is not condoning the divisions, but he states that sometimes they are necessary. Because people are forced to separate over the truth and application of the truth. And so that's a reason why these things exist. He's not condoning it. He's saying these things must not happen. Because they're coming together for the worse, not the better. These divisions are hindering their worship of God. But he says, I understand why they happen. And so the church was divisive. The second thing we see there is the church was selfish, verses 20 and 21. He says, when you do come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. And so now he's introducing this topic of the Lord's Supper, of what we're going to be looking at over the next two weeks. This was the problem that was happening. This was the disorder that they were happening amongst their worship, how they were dealing with the Lord's Supper. Now, this probably might sound strange to us because when we think about the Lord's Supper, we're thinking, well, how in the world can you get drunk on a little cup of wine or a little cup of of whatever, of grape juice? Or how can can one be hungry or one be satisfied with a little old teensy piece of cracker? Well, we have to understand how the Lord's Supper was practiced back then. As I read a while ago, in Acts chapter 2, we've seen that, the, that it talked about the people were coming together and breaking bread in their homes day by day, almost on a daily basis. Well, from the very beginning, the church was, would have these things called love feasts. And this was a meal that was shared together by God's people. And, and what they would do at the end of this meal, they would have the Lord's, the Lord's Supper. They would have communion. They would partake of the elements that Jesus gave his apostles when he when he instituted the Lord's table on the night he was betrayed. And so this became known as the love feast, and so they would do this at the end of the meal. And so that's why Paul is saying, uh, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Because first of all, when they're coming together in this context of a love feast, he says, each one goes ahead with his own, will, own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. And so... What he's saying there is that there is no love involved in this meal at all. And so what would happen usually, because there were no buildings for them to meet in, there would be one of the more influential, one of the more wealthier persons of the church would offer their home for the people to congregate in. And so and so what Paul's saying a lot of times is the way this thing would be set up, they would have like a room in one part to where it was sort of like the fancy dining room to where... 
uh, a lot of your, your, your fellowship and your social times would be had whenever people would come over. And then there would be sort of like an atrium, sort of like a, a courtyard type thing around your home that was more larger. And so a lot of times in this culture, what would happen is the more influential, the more wealthier people would be allowed to come in and sit in with the big, on the big table, you know, and eat with the homeowner. And the wealthy person, the wealthier people would come in there, and then the more poor people would be left outside. And so if you remember what was happening when the church was coming together, God was not just saving rich people, right? In fact, it was almost just the opposite. He was saving the people who were not. He was saving the common people. And so now the gospel is coming into this situation to where there's class distinction, there's, uh, there's this social distinction that these people have grown up in, and so these people are being forced into get, being thrown together in the midst of this, and they're struggling with how to deal with each other. And so the tendency is that in these love feasts, what was happening is that these wealthier people would go ahead. They would have their food. They would bring their food. A lot of times it wouldn't be that they would just, they would, they, they would just have a, uh, one person would fix food. Everybody would bring their own food to get, together. But then the more poor people were not, did have anything to bring. And so they were, that was literally a lot of times where they were getting their meals from, where they were being fed was through the wealthier people, as we saw in Acts. And so Paul is saying, he's condemning these people because he's saying, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. It's not, you're not properly focused on the love feast. You're not, these gatherings, they demonstrated the love of Christ to one another in word and deed. And so these things were not happening. That's not what was happening here. It was just the opposite. There was no love. There was no humility. There was no self-sacrifice. There was no serving of others. It was first come, first serve, and all for one and one for all. He said it was so bad that some people were gorging themselves so bad that they were actually filled up. Some people were getting drunk. And so what happened in a relatively short time, because these things began to happen more and more, we began to see over time, and that's why we have, that kind of explains now why we don't traditionally have a love feast that goes along with the, the Lord's table. They, they kind of separated because the love feast was not being properly celebrated, and so it was hinging upon the proper celebration of the Lord's table and the elements. And so the selfishness was just off the chart. The people were not loving each other. The people were not focused on each, on, on each other, which is what the Lord's Supper is supposed to show us, right? And we're going to look at that in a minute. And so then Paul gives them a very strong rebuke in verse 22. He says, What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Several rhetorical questions Paul lays out there for them. He's confronting these wealthier members who were forgetting the poor people. They were supposed to be there to show the love of Christ to each other, regardless of social status, but they were just doing, they were doing the exact opposite. And so Paul begins this section in verse 17 with a discommendation, and he ends it with one as well. He's saying, if that's what you're focused on, if all you're focused on yourself, then you'd be better off to eat before you come. Don't pollute the Lord's table. Don't pollute this love feast, this time of sharing, this time of otherness. Don't pollute that with your self-centeredness. If that's all you're focused on, you'd be better off not to even come and participate in this. 
He even says, you're despising the church of God. You're despising Christ's church. Very strong indictment. And so that's the problem we see here. This element of worship, this part, this part of worship known as the Lord's table had been so polluted and so corrupted by their bad behavior, by their lack of love for one another, that Paul has to set them straight. And so, what is the best way to show somebody the proper way to, to, to bring a rebuke to somebody about bad behavior? What is the best way to go about that? To show them the proper behavior, right? To lay it out before them what is expected of them. And so he does that in verses 23 through 26 as he lays out what the Lord's table really was about. For he says there, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. Paul says there, I received this from the Lord. And if most, most, his, most historians, most theologians believe that this book of 1 Corinthians was written before any of the Gospels were written. So these people would not have had the written down tradition of the Lord instituting his, the Holy Communion the way He did at, at, on the night He was betrayed. And so what Paul is saying, in, saying here is that I, what I received from the Lord, I also delivered to you. And many times Paul had direct revelation with, from Jesus. We see that in the life of Paul. And so he received that direct revelation from the Lord about what the proper worship of him as far as the Lord's table is concerned. And he says, I deliver that to you. No doubt in the past when he began to plant this church, whenever he he was building this church, he taught them about this. This was a regular part of their worship. And he says that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed. Why do you think he said that? I mean, one, one possible reason could be, I mean, obviously it's historical because that is when when Christ instituted the Lord's table as on the night He was betrayed. But, but what a contrast to their attitudes. On the night when He was betrayed, on the night that Christ was going to be handed over to sinful men, the man who had no sin was going to be placed upon the cross. The most selfless act that any human being has ever done, Christ being the man God, placing Himself upon the cross, the most selfless act for humanity ever superimposed against this selfishness of this church. I think it's a further rebuke when he says that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed, He took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way also He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. This is familiar to us, is it not? We have gone through many observances of the Lord's table over the years, and this is the formulary that most churches use, not the ones in the Gospels, but this right here. This is what the preacher will say whenever he's going through the Lord's table. And so what's going on here? What are these things? What is this talking about? Bread, wine, body. Covenant, what is all these things? So let's go through these one by one and just give a little bit of an explanation. The first thing we say here, see here, this is my body. This is Jesus talking about His saving sacrifice. In the Jewish Passover feast, bread was eaten that was made without yeast. It had been made in haste because they were leaving Egypt in a hurry. 
In addition, a lamb was slaughtered to avert the death angel. So let's flip back to Exodus chapter 12. Hold your finger right there real quick and let's read the account of the Passover. Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. I'm going to go ahead and read for sake of time. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill, kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt, of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And so here, Moses is, through God, God through Moses is setting up this, this service that started on the night whenever the the night before, actually, that the Jews were removed from Egypt from their 400 years of bondage. God sends the death angel upon the firstborn of all of Egypt. And so He says that in order to avert the death of your firstborn, you must slaughter this lamb, you must sacrifice this lamb and apply the blood to the door. And so when the death angel comes over, He passes over that door. And so the Scriptures say that that is to be a memorial to you. On that day, they were supposed to do it for perpetual generations. Each generation was supposed to create, each year, they would recreate this and remember. The symbolism now, as we go back to 1 Corinthians, is what Jesus is doing, or what Jesus was doing on the night he was betrayed, is turned in a different direction. The bread now represents the death of Jesus for his people. The Apostle Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Christ died in our place. He was the Passover Lamb who was sacrificed to avert the messenger of death so that we might, ha we might have life. This is tradition handed down by Paul in the words, This is my body which is for you. And so what Jesus is doing on the night He was betrayed, He sat down to have the Passover with His disciples. And it was literally the last Passover. This was the la that night was the last Passover. We have many. I have a picture in my home. It's called the Last Supper. You know, it's where Jesus is sitting at the table with his disciples. Well, really, that was the first supper, if you want to be 
write about it because that was the night when the first Lord's Supper happened. It was the night of the last Passover. And so what Jesus did is He took that feast and He transformed it into something new where the feast was doing what? On that night, it saved the people of, 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 of Israel, the Jews at that place in Egypt. On that night, it saved their firstborn. It had a specific purpose that night. But it also had a further purpose as it went forward. It foreshadowed the coming of the great Passover lamb, who was the Lord Jesus Christ, who would save His people from their sins. And so that time had come on the night when Jesus was betrayed. He was having the Passover with His disciples. And He's saying, I am the Passover lamb. And this body is given for you, represents that sacrifice that is going to be me for you. The sacrifice that the Passover lamb, the Paschal lamb from all, all those generations who had it, it did, it, it did not mean anything in the sense of what itself passed over, what itself averted. It pointed forward to something else. It was a symbol of something greater. It was a symbol of Christ and his sacrificial life and his sacrifice on his, with his body upon the cross. The second thing we see there, he says, in verse 25, he took the cup after saying, this, is the, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So what is this? God had made a covenant with His people at Mount Sinai when He brought them out of Egypt. A relationship of love, loyalty, and trust had been established. He would be their God and they would be His people. This covenant relationship was initiated by sacrifice and it had been broken by the people. They had not been faithful to that agreement. They had not followed God's standards for the relationship. And we know that that, that covenant was ratified by blood. We see in Exodus 24, 8, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And so the old covenant was ratified by blood. The death of Jesus initiates a new covenant by a better sacrifice, one that does not need to be repeated over and over and over. The new covenant is a better agreement because now not only God but also His people will be able to keep the agreement. This agreement is made on better promises. Hebrews 8.6 says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant He mediates is better, since it enacted on better promises. Hebrews 10, 10 through 12 says, And by that will we have been sanctified through one offering of the body of Jesus once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's what makes it a better covenant. It's done. There's no reason to redo it over and over as the old covenant required. This one was finished and Christ sat down at the right hand of God. And so the cup that Jesus instituted that night represents the fact that Jesus died to pay the penalty due unto us for our sins that through trust in Him and in His death for us, we are forgiven and completely pardoned. That's what the cup symbolizes. But then He goes on to say, after after the bread and after the cup, He says, do this in remembrance of Me. As I just read in Exodus chapter 12, verse 14 said, This day shall be a memorial day for you. It's a memorial. It's something that you remember, <coughs> that you proclaim. You remember that this happened. Paul said that this memorial has been transformed from the Passover into the Lord's Supper. 
Whereas the Passover looked forward to the coming of Christ, now the Lord's Supper looks back, in in one sense, it looks back to the death of Christ. And that's what we are doing when we partake of the elements. We're looking back upon the death of Christ. And so it's a memorial. But it's a participation as well. We see Paul says that the Lord's Supper is teaching is teaching given by Christ handed on to you. Notice that in verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That's in the plural. The commands to eat and drink are in plural. So this instruction is given to the community, a community of believers, those who are the followers of Christ, His church. The covenant binding us to God through the death of Jesus creates a community. That's why we exist. Do you know that? We don't exist because I like you and you like me. We don't exist because we're friends in the worldly sense, sake of way of looking at things. We exist because we have a commonality. We have a community that was created by Christ in His death for us. That's what binds us together. The Lord's Supper is what binds us together. It's a participation in that sense. It's a communal partic- participation, a communal meal. We have fellowship with Christ in a deep and mysterious way. But notice also it's a proclamation. He says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. It's a proclamation. Paul says by performing this ceremony, we proclaim the death of the Lord Jesus. The Lord's Supper dramatizes in a symbolic way, in a symbolic fashion, the central facts of the Christian faith and announces these facts to all who observe in a visible way. It's really the gospel going forth visually. We send, we proclaim the gospel with our lips and words. We tell the things that we, we proclaim to people to be saved from this perverse generation. But in the Lord's Supper, we see the gospel being played out in visible forms. And so it is a proclamation. But also, finally, notice that it's an expectation. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Paul commands the Corinthians to continue this ceremony until the Lord Jesus returns. The celebration is one of hope, certain hope, Jesus Christ will return to this earth bodily and physically. As I said, it was a, in a sense, it was a looking back when we partake of the Lord's table and we partake of the elements. We're looking back upon the sacrifice of Christ and the benefits that that has brought for me and for you. But it's also, but it's not just looking back. We're looking forward in expectancy because if we're just looking back, then we're just celebrating something that happened. Much the same way we remembered 9-11 yesterday. We were looking back of a horrendous event that happened nine years ago, but that's it. But in the death of Christ, in, 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 pro, in proclaiming the Lord's table and, and going forward and doing this ceremony, we're looking forward with expectant hope because this is ultimately going to be fulfilled and culminated when Christ returns and consecrates His kingdom. His kingdom is already now on the earth. But it will fully be realized when He returns and Christ gives, when God the Father hands the nations over to His Son. And so we see that Christ has set up in this ceremony a saving sacrifice. This is His body. That's what His body represents. 
It represents the new covenant in His blood. It represents commemoration. We do it in remembrance of Him. It's a memorial. We are participating together as, in a communal meal together as God's redeemed people. And we're proclaiming the message of hope to a dying world. But we're doing it with expectancy. And so that's what Paul is saying here. That's what you do. That's the proper way that you partake of the Lord's table. The way these people were doing it was a farce. There was no love in it. There was no understanding of the sacrifice that Christ had given for them because it was all self-focused. And so in the few moments that we have left, I want to talk about what do we think about the Lord's table? When we come to the Lord's table, what do we expect? What do we think is happening? What is it that we're really doing? This is no, this is, this is, this is a tremendously hot topic of debate over the years from the church, within the church. Of course, that's nothing new. Things are debated. Many doctrines have been debated throughout the years, but this one has been hotly debated. And today there are presently basically four views on what's going on in the Lord's Supper. And I'm going to give you a brief (coughs) summation of what they are. And they all really center around what's going on with this bread and this wine. What's happening with with these elements when we partake of them? The first one is called transubstantiation. This is the Roman Catholic view. And what they believe is through consecration of the bread and wine, the bread literally changes into Christ's body and the wine changes into Christ's blood. Christ is literally and substantially present in the elements themselves. And by eating the bread, Christ is being re-sacrificed over and over. So what literally happens is a Catholic priest will take the bread and he will pray over the elements and and then the Holy Spirit changes those elements into the literal body of Christ Himself. And so Christ is no longer completely present in heaven. Now He is present on the earth within within that bread and wine. And so by partaking of of this wafer, this bread that has become Christ's flesh, they are literally sacrificing Christ over again and receiving the benefits of that sacrifice over and over again. The second view... It's called consubstantiation. This is the Lutheran view. This was the one that was promoted by Martin Luther himself. And so it's, it's really fairly close to the Catholic view, but they, they believe that the elements do not change into the presence of Christ, but He is actually present in, with, and under the elements. And I'm not fully understand how they differentiate, but somehow or another, spiritually, they believe that, that Christ becomes in and with and under the elements, even though He is not physically present in them as the Catholics believe. The third view is called the Reformed view, which many Presbyterians and many other Reformed churches and many Reformed Baptists believe. And this was the view of John Calvin in the sense that Christ is not literally present in the elements. He is present spiritually in the partaking of the elements. So what they believe is that whenever you partake of these elements, they are not literally becoming the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. It is, it is simply wine and bread. But nonetheless, Christ is presently, He's spiritually present when we partake of these elements in some mysterious way. And then the fourth view is called the memorial view, which is mostly the Baptist view. And this was promoted by Ulrich Zwingli, which was a contemporary of Martin Luther. And 
what we what they believe is that Christ is not present in the elements literally or spiritually. It is simply a memorial service that you are remembering something that Christ did, and these elements helped us to do that. And so those are basically the four views. And so what I want to do is just let's look at I want to look at our confession and see what our confession teaches us, and I want to look at a couple of scriptures and see if we can be informed about how we should look at this ceremony, this this Lord's table. In paragraph 1 of the London Baptist Confession of Faith on the Lord's Supper, it says this, The Supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by Him at the same night wherein He was betrayed to be observed in His churches until the end of the world. For the perpetual remembrance and showing forth the sacrifice of Himself and of His death, confirmation of the faith of believers and all the benefits thereof, their spiritual nourishment and growth in Him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe unto Him, and a bond and pledge of their communion with Him and to one another. And so this introductory paragraph here is clear. It's well-worded and thorough in a sense that it, it, that it, it lays out the purpose of why we're doing this. And if you read the, that chapter in the Confession on the Lord's Supper, the next five paragraphs really deal with this uh, issue of transubstantiation, which you have to remember during the Reformation, that's really what they were dealing with, was trying to break away from Rome break away from the heresies of the Roman Catholic Church. And so much of the confession is, is dealing with that. But then we get down to chapter 7 and it says this, and listen to this, and this one's, this one's very key. Worthy receivers outly, outwardly partaking of the visible elements of this ordinance do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually, receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of His death. The body and the blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance, as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. So I want to read what Pastor Robert Spinney, who's an actually a, a, a pastor of Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Tennessee. He's an ARBCA pastor. I want to read what he wrote about this. I think it would be very helpful to help us understand. He says, Here is a biblical statement regarding what to expect at the Lord's Supper. First, any spiritual benefits that come from the Lord's Supper are only enjoyed by worthy receivers. And we're going to talk about that next week. Nothing magical or automatic happens at the Lord's Supper. Unworthy receivers find no benefit here. Second, worthy receivers outwardly partake of or ingest the visible elements. Visible elements mean the piece of bread and the cup with wine or grape juice. Thirdly, as worthy receivers outwardly partake of or ingest the visible elements, they do also inwardly by faith really and indeed receive and feed upon Christ crucified. In other words, there is a real and genuine communion with the Lord Jesus Christ in the Lord's Supper that is supernatural. It is as real and as genuine as the ingesting of the visible elements. One is outward while the other is inward. This is more than merely memory and sentimental feeling. This is the body and blood of Christ being spiritually present to worthy receivers. Really and indeed by faith, the Lord Jesus Christ is spiritually present in the Lord's Supper. The confession rejects transubstantiation, as I just laid it out, and yet it also rejects a mere naturalistic understanding of this. There is an inward spiritual receiving and feeding upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of His death. He says, do you see what these old Baptists were saying? 
They said that in a spiritual sense that Christ is present at the Lord's Supper, not physically, not in His flesh, not due to transubstantiation, but He is present spiritually and is to be apprehended by faith. There is nothing automatic about taking the Lord's Supper. Everyone who takes the Lord's Supper does not automatically have something great happen to them because the benefits are received through faith. An intelligent faith must be exercised. That's how we apprehend the things of God. But to those who exercise an informed faith with proper expectations, which is very, which is the very nerve of faith, Christ is spiritually present. He says, so we reject the Roman Catholic option of real presence in a sense that Christ is actually present within the elements themselves. We reject that. But we also reject the modern evangelical Protestant option of no presence. We embrace the biblical and Reformation option of spiritual presence. Now, I don't know if you understood all that, but basically what he's saying is that, yes, this is a memorial, just like the Passover was a memorial. But there is something going on there that's bigger than just something that's happening between my ears. Something that's intellectual, something that I just go through sentimentally and with my emotions. There is something that's really happening when we partake of the Lord's table. He says, we reject the Catholic version view of this because it's heresy. Christ cannot be in heaven and in these elements at the same time. That's a heretical view. Resacrificing Christ over and over again is heretical because as I just read a while ago, Christ has offered Himself once for all and sat down at the right hand of God. And so the question is, what should we expect when we do come to the Lord's Supper? When we come to the Lord's Supper, we should expect spiritual and supernatural communion with Christ. You anticipate reality. You anticipate something more than a psychological and mental exercise. You expect something that cannot be wholly explained in natural terms. You expect something more than just a reminder, something to just jog our memories. And these raised expectations will prevent the Lord's Supper from becoming a bogged down in, the, in, in a sad, mournful, and funeral-like way, which is what many the way many people observe the Lord's Supper. It literally is more like a funeral service. We enjoy communion not with a man who is dead, but with a lamb who lives. That's key. Communion with the one who is alive today and is seated at their Father's right hand is not a sad experience. John Calvin said about the Lord's Supper, it is a ladder for raising us on high. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher of the 1800s, says when he's talking about the Lord's Supper, His flesh is meat indeed, and His blood is drink indeed. Can I really feed upon Christ? Really? Yes. The spiritual feeding upon the incarnate Christ, that is what we need. He gives us His flesh to eat, and we, must, and we thus enter into a fellowship of the most intense and mysterious kind, not merely eating with Him, but eating Him. I believe in the real presence of Christ, but that, really, but that reality is nonetheless real because it is spiritual, and only spiritual men can discern it. You see, Spurgeon here is making a play on words. He's tweaking the Roman Catholicism view of transubstantiation. He says, we have the real presence. or That's what the Catholics were saying. We have the real presence. But Spurgeon is saying, no, we enjoy the real presence. 
which is no less real because it's spiritual. Aren't spiritual realities really real? Yes, they are. Dr. Timothy George, another Baptist professor, says, Among many Baptist Christians, there is a growing awareness that the Supper of the Lord should have a more prominent and frequent place in the life of worship, as it certainly did in the early church. There is also the realization that a more robust doctrine of what Calvin called the real spiritual presence of Christ in the Supper is called for by the participational language of the New Testament itself and is in keeping with the best traditions of Baptist life. No less a figure than Charles Haddon Spurgeon portrayed the Lord's Supper as nothing less than an encounter with the living Christ Himself. He says, For most of our history, Baptists have been more concerned with the externals of the table, grape juice or real wine, who may preside, who may partake, rather than with the question of what actually goes on in this sacred meal. That's very, very pointed. The issue before us today is not terminology. The issue is expectations. When we come to the Lord's Supper, what do we expect? What do we anticipate? What do we think will happen when we come in faith to eat and drink the bread and wine? Well, real quick, and I'm running out of time, but I want to look at a couple of verses to further help us think through this. John chapter 6 And you can turn there if you want, but for sake of time, I'm going to go ahead and read. Starting in verse 22, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. See, this is a remarkable passage of what Jesus is saying next. He says, the Jewish listeners now say, wait just a minute. What do you mean when you say that you are the bread of life? Because they were confused. But Jesus doesn't back down. He does not retreat and say, oh, let me soften the blow of my words. He goes on to say, I am the bread of life in verse 48. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. These blunt words startle the people. And we see them in verse 52. They say, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're like, come on, Jesus, that's gross. What are you talking about? How can we eat your flesh? And then he says in verse 53, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now, although Jesus here is not speaking directly about the Lord's Supper here in John chapter 6, He is establishing a proper theological foundation to help us understand the Lord's Supper. Jesus is establishing that He is the material means of all spiritual grace. He is. He is the great gift from God. Again, Pastor Spinney says, If you need any spiritual gift, you must get it from Jesus Himself. 
All spiritual blessings are located in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the comprehensive salvation package in His person, and He becomes unto us all that we need. In other words, John chapter 6, by explaining faith in terms of eating and drinking, establishes that faith is not a mental, to, a mental act and is strict, or strictly a psychological act. Real faith is not just something that's happening between my ears and my mind. Real faith apprehends Christ spiritually. Real faith lays hold of Him and makes Him ours. This means that Christ must be there. He must be present for us to apprehend Him. And then finally, let me look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We just covered this a few weeks ago. Verse 16, but I'm going to read verses 14 through 21 for the context. He says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the, in the, in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord in the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord in the table of demons. This is an unusual verse, but the context here is one that Paul telling the Corinthians not to participate in idolatry. It's not just something that they're thinking about. They're actually into it. They're participating with these demons. And so he's, a, he's instructing these people to refrain from that idol worship. Paul says, don't you know, did it obvious that the cup of blessing which, which we bless, which was actually the third cup, which was the cup that Jesus used. There were four cups that was used in the Passover. The third cup was the cup of blessing. It's a participation in the blood of Christ. And is it obvious to you that the bread we break is a participation in the body of Christ? The New American Standard uses the word sharing. The King James uses the word communion. And the ESV uses the word participation. So all of this is saying when we come to the Lord's Supper, we are participating in the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. One thing is clear from this verse. The Lord's Supper is much more than merely a mental and psychological activity. Something is occurring on a deeply spiritual level, something that is real and genuine, something that is expressed by our words sharing communion and participation. So the issue is, again, expectations. When we come to the Lord's table, which we will next week, what are we expecting to happen? And I, I fear that many Baptists, I believe, have lost sight of what's really happening here because they stress so much the memorial aspect of the Lord's table that they forget the language of Scripture that's telling us that we are actually participating with the Lord in this. We're participating with Him in some way, not some corporal, carnal way like the Catholics propose, where Christ is actually participating there with literally in His body, not some mystical way, but some spiritual way that we apprehend by faith. In some way, the Lord's Supper is used as a means of grace for God's people. Not in saving grace. 
You don't get saved when you eat the elements of the Lord's table. But in some way, you are being blessed by Christ as you participate with Him, as you commune with Him at this meal. And so that's what I want to leave you with today to think along those things as we go through them. And, I, and listen, I, I'm not getting on to you to say that you have, you have minimized the Lord's Supper. I think you're, we're all going through and what we know about this and the we, way we've done it over the years. But one of the things I've been challenged through as I've, looked, as I've studied this out this week is that have, I, have we lost sense of what's really happening in this, in this part of our worship? Have we lost sight of it? Erwin Lutzer, in the book he wrote on Doctrines That Divide, he talks about uh, uh, Ulrich Zwingli and Martin Luther who hotly debated this topic in their day. I mean, they're so bad that they broke fellowship. Luther was so dogmatic about it. He says, Is there anything more sorrowful, more deserving of tears than that the Lord's Supper should be used as a subject of strife and division? Philip Melanchthon asked this question in August 1544. He had good reason to be sorrowful. A few years earlier, Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli debated the Lord's Supper at the Marburg Castle in Germany. Flanked by a few friends, Luther and Zwingli sat at opposite ends of a long table surrounded by observers. Luther reluctantly attended under growing pressure to unify the reform movement in Germany and Switzerland. Prudence required a united front against the growing opposition of the Catholic Church. If Luther and Zwingli could agree on the Lord's Supper, theological as well as political unity between the two countries could be achieved. It was not to be. Luther held tenaciously to his convictions and even inferred that the Swiss were not brothers in Christ. According to church historian Philip Shaft, after the debate, Zwingli approached Luther with tears and held out a hand of brotherhood, but Luther declined it. The first Protestant council ended unsuccessfully. He goes on to say later, If Melanchthon were alive today, he might not weep because of controversies that surround the Lord's Supper, but he might well sorrow because of our indifference to its meaning and importance. This, too, is deserving of tears. That's what we need to contemplate. Have we become indifferent to this part of our worship that is very vital? And if you go back and read Acts chapter 2, you see they were breaking bread daily. They were taking part in their love feast, but the main point of their love feast was the, breaking of, was the partaking of the elements of the Lord's table. There was something that was meaningful to them. And so that's what I want to challenge us to look at, to, re, to rethink through these things and see if we have not become indifferent to the Lord's table. So think on these things this week, and we will continue with this sermon next week and look at worthy participators, and what does that mean? And what were these people dying? These people were dying over their unworthy, over participating in an unworthy manner, the Scripture said. So what is that about? We'll look at that next week. Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You, God, that You have given us clear instructions in Your Word. We thank You for this blessing of the Lord's table as we are able to commune with you, Father, and commune with the, with the, through the power of the Spirit and commune with our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us to repent in ways that we have become indifferent. And Father, help us to always lean on your truth and help us to always be thankful, God, of, our, of the sacrifice of Christ that is what makes us a community of believers here because of his sacrifice. We thank you and we love you and all that you do in Christ's name. Amen.